happy Monday or Tuesday, and welcome to Off the Record. Uh, we've been moving on, and this is episode number eight. You can find us at offtherecord.fm. The last few weeks have been really fun for us, and we've been getting a lot of uh, listener questions, and uh, we're going to be really glad to answer those while we record. So if any of you guys have any questions or feedback, please head to offtherecord.fm backslash ask, and either email us or just drop us an ask on Tumblr or Twitter at offtherecordfm, and uh, we'll try to work that into the show. Just a little follow-up from last time. I made a mistake, and I said Amazon Prime is $99 a month. Uh, it's $99 a year. Sounds like a better offering. Also, Amazon did launch their Fire Phone uh, on last Thursday, I believe the day was, and it also takes advantage of Prime Music. I just saw a thing on maybe Billboard, and I'll put it in the show notes, that said... Uh, Prime Music has been used by tens of millions of people, or sorry, tens of millions, tens of millions of songs have been listened to at this point, and there's been a lot of laughs about that because uh, with only a million songs, that would mean that they would have to have around each user listening to about a hundred songs in, in a week. In yeah. a week, yeah. And uh, Amazon is traditionally a company that never reveals its numbers, uh, and so that just seems a little bit inflated and a little bit of a lie. But if that's true, those million artists are going to get some decent royalty checks, all like five dollars worth. I saw that tweet as well. Uh, I think it was uh, Ian from uh, Songkick did that math. But uh, you know, if you think of it this way, when you have millions of people looking at that advertisement a week that's not a very hard click through rate to imagine that some that over 100,000 people even may have tried it cuz if you think of it this way I'm on Amazon 3 to 4 times a day sometimes and you're seeing that ad I don't think that that's the most inconceivable thing to be honest with you I think cuz we can't imagine what it's like there's never been a service like Amazon so part of me doesn't think that's as crazy as they're saying it's crazy that's fair too and I, you know obviously they're like you said, like their home base is just so crazy large, just with people going on Amazon.com, and you can—that's the first thing they're showing to you. That and the Fire Phone. Also, mm-hmm. they sent out. I got at least two emails about it, and that I can't even imagine how many email addresses they have. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, maybe it's actually not that crazy. And hope you know, frankly, hopefully that many people are using and listening to it. That would be great. So I guess I guess we'll see that more as time goes on. Um, but our first, our uh, our one listener question this week that we're going to talk about was uh, short and simple, but it's a good one. Uh, it was just, could you talk about starting a small label and how to go about that in legal terms? And then we're also going to talk about a little bit uh, in regards to starting a band as well. Um, so about a year ago, Thomas and I started Bad Timing Records, and we also went through the process of, boy, how do we do this? Um, our first release wasn't traditional, I suppose, in that it was a reissue. Uh, And so because we were going through Sony Columbia to do it, they needed things like um, us to have a business EIN number, which is basically the the business form of a social security number for those who don't know. And uh, it's also explained this too, is that in order to get one of those, um, you need a bank account for your business and uh, you need to fill out some forms using either a lawyer or legal zoom or something like that. Yeah, so there, there's a few different steps. So, you know, if we were just a normal label, uh, not that we're not a normal label, but if we were uh, a label and we were just going to, let's say, put out a release by my uh, imaginary friend that had a band I really liked and was like, man, I should start a label because I want your music to be out there, then 
you know, I would imagine a lot of labels, a lot of labels that we all love and buy music from probably didn't have a legal system set up the day they put out uh, that first band's music. But Thomas and I were in a position where we actually needed to do that. And it was a little daunting because we had no idea if, uh, you know, if our first release would be a success, if, you know, how long term we wanted the label to be for us, any of the stuff. But in order to even put out that first release, we had to sort of put together all these legal steps. And we also had to just uh, get it off the get it off the ground. So that meant more startup money for things that weren't even music related. And that shouldn't be to scare anyone. It's just sort of just sort of part of the job, I guess. Um, and it's it's not that tough. You have you have a few options of either being an LLC or you can be an S Corp. Bad timing decided to be an S Corp. Uh, due to so why did you guys decide to be an S Corp instead of an LLC? It's just what my lawyer honestly recommended <laughs> uh, for the state of New York, at least. That's just what he recommended, and uh, it was a you know it was a pretty similar price thing. Um, but he was like, "That's he just you know he just went for it and took care of it for us." So if you have a lawyer, if you have a family lawyer, if you have a lawyer you you know trust that you can go to that won't price gouge you i i would probably just recommend you know see talking with him about whether you should him or her about whether it should be an llc or an s corp and then sort of go from there but like jesse said you do actually need a bank account as well to link that uh corporation to or llc to before you can really start getting anything moving on on that end have you you've set up you set up a bunch of stuff like that over the years i'd imagine right think I'm seven businesses and four bands deep on it. Yeah, I've usually done LLCs, um, which was from advice of a good accountant I had, but it's also been quite a while since I've done it. Um, but I would actually say that, yes, you guys were unique in that you knew you were about to do a pretty big release and you had to deal with this stuff. But if you're just putting out a 7-inch or you're just putting out even something just digitally and you're uploading it to... TuneCore, Reverb Nation, CD Baby, or DistroKid or whatever. I think one of the things people get really bogged down in in the beginning of like their endeavors, whether it's a band or a label, is oftentimes trying to be really professional about everything at first, when a lot of the time that's wasted time and money that you could be putting into the success of this stuff. Um, I do think there's some big preparation things to do at the beginning of some stuff, but um, I don't always think that this needs to be the first step uh, for a lot of people, I think a lot of times you should get going and then kind of make it up as you go along. Like, um, it goes back to that thing of two of like, um, there's this great book called rework that I think is the best business book I've ever read. Um, where they talk about how you shouldn't plan and you should just get started working and figure things out as you go. And I think it's kind of comes down to some of the same stuff with this is that just get moving and start working it out and figure it out. Yeah. There's definitely a line. Uh, <laughs> like I, I've been in places, even with Let's just say for properties act stuff where I'll I'll want to try something new and there will sort of be like uh, some tape I have to cross to be able to do that. But uh, you know I can. It's easy to get caught up in that stuff because you know it's also easy to sort of scare yourself. Scare yourself to be like, oh god, like I need all this before I can even before I can even go on. But that's not necessarily the case. Uh, and I, I and I do you know obviously the most important thing is just doing what you're going to do and do it well and do it with passion. Um, but, and it, you know, it was to our benefit for, uh, the acceptance reissue that we had to set up all that stuff to work with Sony because by the time the release came out, we already had it done. Uh, and, mm. and, you know, we are working towards getting all that stuff in line while we are also getting the artwork for it done and, and all that stuff. You know, we did have 
similarly to similar to a band writing their first record, we technically had forever to put out our first release, you know? Um, and, and that was because it was a reissue. It wasn't a new band, but I would imagine if we were just starting a label, you know, we wouldn't have all, we wouldn't have had all that stuff squared away. We would have wanted to get an LLC together or whatever. And that's together probably a few months after our first release, if we thought it was going to pan out. But the most important thing is making sure it can pan out. So contrary to what I just said, though, one of the things, I'd, so we wanted to also talk about this in terms of a band, too, and what you do when you start out. So I want to say, you know, it's important at some point that for tax reasons, you also get this LLC. Um, a lot of companies that you might might need to deal with will require that you're either doing, um, that you give them a uh what is it, EIN number? Yeah, it's an EIN. It. So there's a point where you have to do that, but the other thing I would say that's very, very important, I think a lot of people overlook that's some good hidden advice, is um, you need to make a band agreement or a agreement if you have partners about the way profits and the way things are going to be handled and even the way you make decisions. So I talk about it in my book kind of briefly, but like, let's say one member came up with the band name. What happens if that member if that member gets fired? Do they own the band name and no one else does, even though let's say it's the bassist who doesn't write any of the songs? When you guys are having a fight about whether to go on tour or not, is it decided by democracy or is it just the guy who writes the songs who has the main say? Does everybody have an equal vote? Do after two members leave who are original members, do you bring in that member? There's another really uh, interesting thing with like publishing is like, so I always use this example is that like, so when I did the record with The Cure, Robert Smith writes all The Cure songs. The other guys may contribute little things, but he gives them, anybody who played on that song, he gives them an equal share of the songwriting royalties. Um, and this is a smart thing that a lot of bands do. It can be pretty resentful when one person's making bank off of songwriting royalties and getting a $500,000 advance and the rest of the band doesn't. You get a lot of animosity in your band and you also get a lot of um, resentment when you're able to afford you know, fancy lobster dinners on tour and they're eating ramen. So making that agreement and coming up with how you deal with all this stuff is a really important thing to do early on instead of later because as people's finances are more dependent on it, they get a little bit more irrational and um, that fight becomes way more ugly. Yeah, it's a, it's a stressful thing. Like in January, we just went through the process of setting up a um, setting up an LLC for Knuckle Puck because our van blew up and we needed to buy a new van and uh, we didn't really have a sound way of doing that. So I very like hurriedly had to sort of rush together like getting an LLC filed and, and all that stuff and it was a it was a stressful position to put us, ourselves in. But it's also, at this point, it's so necessary, especially when you go through things like you need a W-9 for every tour you go on. And, you know, all, there's it's very invaluable just for the sole reason that you actually are going to need it if your band is going to sort of grow. Uh, because if you hope, you know, if you hopefully get on like a solid, legitimate tour and you don't have your W-9 stuff set out, like that's going to be frustrating for the headlining bands, TM or manager or venue or whatever. Um, and then there, there is, of course, taxes as well. And similarly for the label, like, you know, we, we went through some tax frustration stuff this year that we're still like hammering out the final steps, even with, even with all our paperwork together. But if we didn't have that paperwork together, like God, like it would be so frustrating and it is already frustrating. Um, so I would, 
there's a, <clears throat> unfortunately those are just the necessities I think, but like you just have to do it and doing it smartly is obviously very important. Um, so whether it's a manager or a, or a family lawyer or a new lawyer or internet, good internet advice from someone like Jesse that's writing about it, like it's, I, it's better to square that away sooner, uh, after you have some of things like good music or a good release coming up, I'd say. Have you run into bad situations? Well, here's a, here's an interesting one. So one of the bands I worked with, um, you can't say names for this stuff, just so people know that I usually like to be full disclosure, but um, with financial things, there are NDAs sometimes. And um, I had a band, when we made the LLC, we put all five of us on, and uh, or I should say this, we put... Five of us on, and then me. Um, so the other thing about an LLC is that you also have to write the way votes are taken and what the democracy is of this thing and what the way profits are split when you do it. And so I was put on as a tie-breaking vote because it was a four-person band, and then I was the fifth one to break the tie if there was that thing. But then one of the members left. But the other thing about it is the other members then like, well, I should still be keeping getting merch. And it's like, dude, you joined the band like – years into its existence and you were in the band for six months you just happened to be those six months when it was there but the one thing is these documents are very legal binding and they can lead to really bad lawsuits so you have to put stuff like how you handle when somebody leaves like do they still keep collecting merch rights even though they're not on tour with you you know it's very important most bands say no that whoever's in the band at the time splits all that stuff but you get to still get your performance and songwriting royalties on anything you played on during that time but anything where the band is still existing a lot of the time a member won't still get that if they decide they don't want to be in the band anymore and, and it's it's a tough situation to figure out at first as well because ideally the band is happy when they're forming their LLC and it's like, of course, we're all going to split this if it's four people, 25 each way or whatever, and we're all going to have equal voting power and all that. But then you actually, you know, whether it's that someone in the band or a manager or whatever, it's like, well, like, is this actually how it's going to be? Like, you need to also think of it, unfortunately, like worst case scenario as well because... Ideally, no one's going to get screwed over if something, if someone quits the band or someone has to leave the band on unfortunate circumstances or something like that. Um, I think it's sort of hard to be as pragmatic as as that slip of paper is when you're filling out. We get twenty percent or twenty five percent voting each, but it's really important. I would say just long term for everyone's sake, for the for personal legal issues and for like the long standing financial look of the band to just. Like be educated about it. Don't rush it. Have have a conversation with everyone, whether you know whether it's a label or a band, and uh, or or something else, and just say like, hey, like let's think of the worst case scenarios too here, because unfortunately we all see the worst case scenarios happen, and then it pops up on a website, and it's like, oh boy, you made a stupid decision when you were seventeen or nineteen in a band, and that's never fun. Yeah, or I, I mean, even. Yeah, it's not fun. I remember how much, uh, like, it hurt Nirvana's brand when after Nevermind got really huge, Kurt Cobain said, wait, 33, 33, 33, no way. I'm taking 66, you two could split 33. And everybody's like, oh, Courtney loves being a Yoko and made him do that. And it was a, it was a very bad press look. So you want to kind of anticipate this stuff and stick to it and get this agreement taken care of as soon as possible and as early on as possible yeah and that's that's probably a good time for our first break 
Our sponsor, our first sponsor this week is Bad Timing Records, a label none of us have ever heard of. <laughs> um, but at BadTimingRecords.com, we have a new release from Park coming up called Jacob the Rabbit. It's out on July 15th. It's their first new music in eight years. Uh, Jesse touched it up for vinyl. Uh, it's on a ten inch. Uh, it's on a ten inch EP with a. It's a screen printed B side and also comes with a booklet. Uh, it's probably my favorite vinyl release we've ever done at this point. The the artwork, the jacket is matte. It's just all very, very rad. Uh, we also have a knuckle puck twelve inch for the weight that you buried with the screen printed B side as well up for sale. Uh, that band will be on tour in September and October. Census fail. And then we, you know, we just have a really busy summer and fall coming up. I think we have more releases coming up in the fall than uh, we have had in a year put together. And that is scary. But go to BadTimingRecords.com. Lots of great stuff there. And thank you to my label, BadTimingRecords.com, for sponsoring Off the Record this week. Next up, uh, so last week, Last week we saw on day of recording that there was sort of this rumor going around that YouTube would potentially be uh, blocking videos from artists that didn't sign up for their paid streaming service. And there's been talk for probably like two or three years at this point, maybe ever since Spotify was becoming prevalent in the U.S., that YouTube would get into this game through Google. Uh, and so last week we saw this, again, this rumor that they'd block out indie artists or just artists who weren't signing up for this thing. And we didn't really know how it would hammer out, but a week later it seems like we have more details that sort of now unfortunately confirm that news. And so the the gist of it is those who don't opt into YouTube's ad-free streaming service uh, and our indie artists will have their videos blocked. Um, YouTube has signed a bunch of deals with major labels and larger indie labels as well, but if you don't agree to these terms, YouTube can block your videos from both their free and paid tiers. And it's a, you know it's a little hard I, I think to sort of fully grasp at this time since we haven't actually seen this music service yet, but uh, it, do, it doesn't sound too friendly, right? Well, I mean, when the report first came out, I made the joke that um, the way my text messages looked uh, that day was like how it must have looked um, to be a, a like IT guy at a company before the Y two K bug happened. Like, I had twenty five texts coming in just being horrified that their videos were going to get ripped down but sadly with like most reporting these days that usually the first report of something is a really really exaggerated version of it and no one's getting their videos ripped down but you won't be able to monetize them supposedly anymore and part of this whole thing with youtube is that you know they're going to place ads in between this and supposedly it's going to put a lot more money back into the music business but i really wish that we would get into a um culture of when these crazy crazy reports come out that they don't get spread so much because you know it, that if they were actually doing that and ripping people um down from the service and then your video is deleted and all this momentum the amount of class action lawsuits and antitrust lawsuits since google's in a near monopoly at this point you know the second vimeo goes out of business they basically have a monopoly on this um, sector, you know, that would be exhibit A in an antitrust lawsuit. But at the same time, I think there's been a lot of talk over the years that Google's going to be the very big test of that antitrust at some point. And are they going to be broken up or not? And we haven't broken up a company in a long time, but they might be the one and that would be a very bad move for them. 
Yeah, and, and one of the reports I was reading based off of, like, the, the first report was kind of like, well, if that's true, the bare minimum is shitty and the worst is sort of this is illegal. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, I, mm-hmm. it would kind of be hard to imagine, even though Google and I, and I guess even YouTube sort of muscle their way through things because of their, you know, their resources and their capital, like, since they will probably have months before the streaming service officially launches and there is all this outcry already, it would kind of, you know, you one would think it would kind of be foolish of them if they were actually like, ah, we'll take the risk of this being super illegal anyway and we'll just rip out all this stuff. You know, like, it's hard to imagine that with, like, with with their lawyers involved and even, you know, even someone just working on the project to be like, you know, maybe this isn't the right move and to do it anyway uh, because... It's not, you know, there is the chance that this could be incredibly, incredibly successful. I mean, we've all seen that, like, so many people use YouTube instead of something like Spotify. There's a chance that YouTube could, you know, have a major stake in this, in the streaming game anyway. So it would it would be silly to have a product launch uh, of a, you know, of a, of a service that could, ascend, you know, have a really good shot at winning, at winning a lot of the streaming games uh, and then have it, you know, just sort of, beholden to god knows how many lawsuits from even more you know from indie labels and then bands across the board um but i you know i I still i think there's still a lot for us to see there i saw jeff and run for cover treating someone maybe just last night about like whether how true it is or not uh run for cover has invested tons of time and i'm sure tons of money as well over the last year or two you know, building up their YouTube platform with with things like uh, their small talk series and gear talk and and all this other stuff that has just made a really great environment for them. Tuesdays with Tay, for example, all, all this stuff that a lot of us watch every week. Um, and you know, and I guess that's clear that Run for Cover hasn't been offered any kind of partnership because I imagine they wouldn't be talking about it. So I'm kind of interested to see what scale these these indie labels are, right? That they're talking to. These are negotiations aren't negotiated on a single label basis. Um, labels have representatives. Sometimes it's their digital aggregator. So I believe run for covers through ADA. Yeah, they go through ADA. So, so there's companies like Merlin who um, opt all of their artists in. Or I'm sorry, Merlin will get a, a handful of the indie labels and they'll do the broad negotiations for a handful of these labels. And so. It's not really about if Run for Cover opted in. They're not going to go to every single indie label. And, and, you know, if you're a DIY musician, you know, it's the same thing as that there's going to be a opt-in for this just the same way you opted into their ads. Um, That's kind of how these things have to go. So it is a weird thing is that, you know, you're basically going to get offered something you can't negotiate if you're a... uh, whether you're a small label or you're a DIY musician, that you're basically going to just get offered a fair monetization. But the other thing to think about these days is that there's also a lot of chatter that Congress is going to get a bill. I think actually the bill is already drafted that saying that like a lot of these royalties are not fair on one side to the startups and on because like you see companies like Pandora going out of business and then there's another side to it saying that you know musicians aren't getting paid and they're broke and the music industry is dying we need to have higher royalties so this is one of those big things where we're really getting closer and closer to seeing how this all shakes out but it's hard to say what that's going to be yeah I just I just don't know it's going to be really curious because 
I don't know that I would necessarily use this YouTube screaming subscription thing, whatever it'll be. But again, like, don't you think, I mean, we, you have, you've obviously seen those numbers more than I have. I'm sure just that so many people just go to YouTube to click, let me listen to this song by this band instead of subscribing to Spotify or using it's nearly the, um, the, the statistic I've seen that it's getting close to that there's more cons- music consumed on YouTube than anywhere else by almost double now. Yeah, they ha- I mean, they have, they have the lead without even having a service. <laughs> Obviously, it's getting to a point for them. It's f- funny because their stream sounds about as bad as an o- old school MySpace stream, too. That's true. For most of the songs. My, you know, it's all MySpace. I, I, I can't listen to music on it. <laughs> we can pretty much blame MySpace for a lot of what's bad in music these days. Bad haircuts, especially. Uh, yeah, so I just think that in that sense, a lot of bad haircuts. Um, I just think that you know they've already they're already winning without even trying, essentially. And so you know if they, if they hopefully have a really good plan, it could be great. It could as long as the song qual, as long as the actual like audio quality of the songs are good and. There's a you know there could be the chance that you use it as well. We don't really know, but um, I'm just sort of curious to see how much more of bad news will come of this before it actually launches. And it seems like we're gonna get a lot of a lot of long think pieces along the lines of just like this sounds terrible, like Google and YouTube are ruining music again instead of saving it. But if everything does pan out, like it could actually legitimately pump a lot of money back in, right? Like, do you think this is, this is obviously smart of YouTube in your mind, right? Oh yeah. I mean, you know, if they're going to get more people, I mean, YouTube has an amazing ad base right now. They have tons and tons of advertising go. And, you know, some of the talk of this has been the idea that this is going to be a free music streaming service with ads, way more ads than Spotify, which I imagine is going to annoy the hell out of everybody. Yeah. 30 Um, seconds. But that has very, very big potential. Oh, God. I mean, but like, you know, that there's also a lot of people who aren't going to care and they're going to be fine with that because they don't want to devote the money to it. But listening through those ads puts money in musicians' pockets. Um, You know, YouTube cuts some pretty big checks. And I've been seeing some statistics about like how much of uh, labels income is now coming from things like this. So it's not the the end of the world, but it will be another... um, dagger in the heart of iTunes and music download um, money. So that's also a weird thing is as we, as we get to that, there's going to be a really bad growing pain period at some point where when music downloads are cannibalized by these streaming services, there's going to be some point where the money's not quite there in music streaming and then it's going to get, get back there and there's going to be more money. But in that interim, it might get really ugly for some of the labels who are struggling. Yeah, I think, I mean, and I think that's probably a conversation we'll continue to have long term on, on the show and even just in general, just of like as as a Spotify continues to grow or as, you know, maybe Amazon or Apple's Beats thing or Spot or uh, YouTube becomes a massive success. What's sort of the I don't think we've really seen how seen how the effects of downloads uh, will change yet until we sort of see all the streaming services pop as big as they can uh and then that'll be a different conversation to have as well because sure like youtube may be pouring in money but you know money will be falling by the wayside on the download side of things potentially it's it's going to be an interesting dichotomy the other thing that's interesting is is you know 
we're seeing Apple buy Beats, which will cannibalize iTunes music downloads. And if YouTube does do a free ad-supported thing, that's going to cannibalize Google Play. And, you know, Google's been putting a lot of effort. Like, you know, there's ads everywhere I walk in the city. Every time I'm watching Mad Men or whatever, there's ads for Google Play right now. And they're really trying to make that happen. I wonder how this works with that and how they integrate that. Because it seems a little counterintuitive to be trying to encourage, you know, downloads of the new Chromio album on Google Play when you're going to have a ad-supported music streaming site service. Yeah, it sounds potentially a little confusing for them. Uh, though it sounds also kind of not necessarily surprising for a Google-branded thing as well. Because <laughs> I, you know, yeah. you know, I could see them killing off play for no good reason in a month. Not that like I think they'll do that, but you know, it's just a Google way of, oh yeah, we'll just kill this off and we'll build the same thing four more times under four new names. Uh because that's just how they do it. That's what they did with everything leading up to Google Plus and what they will probably do to Google Plus eventually as well. Um, but yeah, I, I, that's kind of in the in the tech geeky side of things. I'm, I'm very interested to see how they sort of separate that. Because like, YouTube does pretty much run as an independent company. Like YouTube bought uh, Twitch, right? YouTube bought Twitch a month ago. Yes. Uh, Google, like obviously now Google owns Twitch, but it was billed in press releases as a YouTube-centric purchase. Like YouTube buys Twitch, not Google. And they did the same thing with um, that company um, Lime, something that does song clearances for cover songs. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was a YouTube purchase, not a Google purchase. Yeah, and you know, obviously that all has the same back end eventually, but. Um, you know, might, we might just be in a situation where Google will be seeing, well, how does how does this YouTube thing pan out? If it's going to be really successful, like maybe we should put our eggs in, in that basket. Uh, and that's all a lot of speculation, but I would not be surprised to see them both run separately either. I don't, you know, I don't necessarily know if everyone knows that Google owns YouTube, like a random person with a samsung smartphone listening to google play i don't know if they also know that google owns youtube at this point yes i i don't think most of the people i ride the subway with uh care about this stuff uh the company also is called limelight we will have that in the show notes and show notes can be found at off the record.fm slash uh episodes our, our second sponsor this week is get more fans and get more fans is a book that Jesse wrote, it's a 700-page extensive guide with resources and methods to promote your band, detailing everything you need to know to get people to listen to your music and the art around it. Uh, the recent reissue, which I think came, was in April or May, right? Uh, in uh, April. In April. And that now has 20 more pages, including a bonus chapter on the daily habits uh, you can do to get more fans to your music. So let's uh, get more fans. Look that up on Amazon. Download it, leave a rating, getmorefansbook.com, and that'll also be in the show notes. Uh, so our, our last topic this week is pay-to-play. Uh, an article was written on Holix a few weeks ago, which a good friend of mine, James, helps run. Um, and it the article was called, Repeat After Me, I Will Not Pay-to-Play Shows. Um, so the, the gist of that is, and if you don't know what pay-to-play is, pay-to-play is imagine uh, being a local band in a random town in somewhere in New York, and uh, you would like to open for the Dangerous Summer, whoever. You would like to open for a band that's touring a small club, and the promoter says, we need a local opener if you can sell 
I don't know. If you can sell 50 tickets, 40 tickets, whatever, for 10 bucks each, you guys can play the show. Uh, so just as so I didn't really understand, or I didn't really, I don't think I really knew this existed, I guess, until like four or so years ago. Um, I never like, I just, there was no reason for me to know it existed. I assume there's no reason for a lot of people to know pay to play exists. But so has that, has this, has this always been a thing? It was a very, very controversial thing in the LA hair metal scene around 1987 to 1990. Um, I want to say it was Bill Gazzari who started this concept, um, who is a very, uh, famous hair metal promoter in LA at the time had a lot of power and uh but the big thing is is people wanted to be the opening act for poison or slaughter or rat or whatever lame chick looking band was playing there um and so um it was that, that thing of you know a lot of people really fought back very hard against this uh model business model and uh they lost because we're still talking about it today and um most of the bigger shows i know around new york city um whether it's sato's party house odd to you know shows at webster hall or whatever uh, a lot of bands have to do this in order to get on the opening slot and you know it is a catch-22 is that you get some great exposure if you do this but it's a horrible business model but then when you think of that so you know i was a concert promoter for years we chose to not do this um we chose to take the hard road but you know for a promoter you know there was a lot of times i'd get a band who'd beg me to put them as the opening ba band for some band and um then they would do no work promoting it they wouldn't do lift a finger they'd tell me that they're gonna flyer everything and i would never see a flyer they made and then there'd be five people there to see them meeting basically their significant others and the one guy who comes to get stoned with the band at band practice. And, you know, you're like, great. Uh, now I'm out a bunch of money because I didn't fill out this club and I trusted you. There is a thing that this is the way to ensure that the band has a consequence if they don't uh, do the their side of the promotion. Yeah, I, I kind of get it on both sides. And that's the tricky thing about it to me. Like I could, I, I could read this article, which I did, and I could be like, yep, no pay to playing ever. Right. And I like, I could, I could, you know, I could just read that and be like, yep, you can not, you can never sway me. And then you could write the exact opposite article with promoters that do uh, impose a pay to play model and even some bands, right, that have done the pay to play method. And I'm sure I could equally feel, oh, yeah, that sounds fair. Like, I, I get your points as well. And that's sort of, I think, the like crux of the issue is that, like you were just saying about promoting shows, like, if this band is going to bring 40 friends and family and people out, like, boy, that sounds great to me, especially on a tour in like a, in a weird, in a weird B market area that is not going to get a lot of people on a weekday and you're going to bring 40 people. That sounds like a great guarantee of this show. And it may, as a promoter, I would imagine make me want to put you on more shows, hopefully. Um, but I can see the other side too, where it's, where it seems kind of gross. Um, and, you know, there are some bands that have, I'm sure, never done that and they've gone on to be very successful. And I'm just, you know, sure there are bands that have done pay to plays once or more and have also gone successful. So it's just, you know, I think a lot of it, like to me in New York City, it feels weird to me for some reason. But let's say it's like Poughkeepsie, New York. That makes so sense. What, so what feels weird to you about it in New York City? To me, because there is such a wider potential market, right? So let's say Santos, right? 
I can't imagine how many people in a year go to a show at Santos. How many people buy a ticket to go to Santos? Mean like through through uh, through TicketWeb or whatever. Meaning, boy, that's a whole lot of emails Santos has to be able to promote their own shows. It's a whole lot of you know they have a wider range of ability to spread their uh, you know to spread their promotions, right? But something like let's say a show in Poughkeepsie, uh, a venue, the Loft, the Loft holds two hundred people. The chance, the chance, which is the bigger version of that venue, holds 600 people. They don't have shows four nights a week. They may only have shows twice a week. And it's Poughkeepsie. There's like a limited market there. Uh, there's a school there uh, that I am blanking on. It starts with a V. There's a college there, rather. Poughkeepsie has a large college. Vassar. So. Vassar, thank you. And so when Vassar's out of school, I bet, you know, 20% of that potential show market also leaves. So to me, like, it makes more sense because there's a there's a smaller there's a smaller amount of people you can promote your show to and there's way less people obviously just in that upstate or new york area but something again like santos or wherever if it's boston or philly there just seems more possibility to do better promoting on the venue side and on the promoter side as well like does that make sense to you or do you just think that's not valid because again like i could see it just also not being valid I see another thing of it, and, you know, while it wasn't my favorite time of music, but, like, you know, when we had the neon swooped hair MySpace band era, you know, I'd see all these bands doing, like, you know, really good fan connections with this stuff by, like, basically, you know, they'd go on MySpace, put up a bulletin, and they're like, we'll meet you at the mall, we'll drive to your house to deliver a ticket and everything, and that makes huge fan connections that really last and work. But at the same time, that's great for an 18 to 20-year-old kid who's going to school and maybe has a part-time job. But that gets pretty rough for the 23-year-old who's working 40 to 60 hours a week and then trying to also have a band on the side that they're trying to get off the ground. That's not the best lifestyle I've ever uh, seen. Yeah, it's... I don't know, there seems to be so much back and forth. Like Nate Doro, uh, he's a promoter that books fusion shows in the uh, Michigan area. He's a great guy. He's, he writes for Property Zach. Uh, he's well-known in sort of the punk and hardcore music scenes. And he books shows from, you know, 200 caps to like, uh, you know, multi-thousand rooms. And in this article on Holics, he was quoted with saying... Uh, <laughs> Uh, sorry, he was, he, you know, he said along the lines of, I think it's bullshit. If you're required to pay to play an event, that's not cool at all. However, I am a big believer that for local acts, their draw is best when they help sell tickets to their fan base. So it's kind of like, it's just a huge contradiction in, in a way. Um, and so I don't, I don't really know. I just think down from pr- promoters to me and you to bands, like everyone sort of hedges on the argument. <laughs> The one time, I think it was probably around two years ago now, and I, I won't say names, but a band was touring, band was doing a B-Market tour, and uh, they had two shows booked with the promoters in two different regions, and the artist found out that the promoter was um, doing pay-to-play for locals uh, because he wanted more people to come to the shows because the tickets weren't selling well. And um, when the artist found out, he like demanded that the promoters like stop using that method for his shows, and the promoter refused. And then uh, the artist like dropped off of those shows. 
and instead like book their own house shows in those venues to get back at the promoter. Uh, and in a case like hmm. that, I was kind of like, well, like, yeah, you're really punk, I guess. But like, if the tickets weren't selling well and the promote, you know, it's a promoter's job not to lose their wallet on your show. And they're, you know, if they can bring 40 more kids out, let's just say like, like, is that really a bad thing? Or are you just kind of trying to prove a point that no one besides you and the promoter will ever know about? And me, obviously, I know about it. In- insider baseball, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, what I think is an interesting thing that could be disruptive to this, too, and make it be a little less of a horrible thing is that we're starting to see the emergence of all these ticketing services. So, like, Limited Run, for example, you can sell um, tickets to a show through your website. So it doesn't become about now that you have to go meet the kid at the mall and take all this personal time and gas money just to make this happen, which is some of the main complaint about this pay to play model is that you can just sell tickets on your website and prove that you sold those 40 tickets to your 40 fans. You're supposed to be able to draw, you know, when you get these gigs, you're telling them, yes, I can get 40 kids in the local market, which is why I deserve this opening act. I've been cutting my teeth long enough. There's a quantifiable way to prove it that doesn't do anything. And what's other, even more interesting about that is, let's say the venue sells you a $10 ticket for $8 a piece. You can be taking that $2 and not have to worry about the promoter paying you your proper due because you get it right then and there through the power of the internet. Yeah, and that's a good point. Services like Limited Run and, and they have sponsored off the record before, but services like Limited Run make some of this stuff easier and frankly friendly for the uh, for the artist and also showgoer. In fact, I would rather buy a ticket from Limited Run than something like Live Nation because it's not going to drive me insane when I check out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> there, won't, there, there, there won't there won't be a quarter of the price of the ticket and service fees put on top of it. Yeah, and it's just gosh, such a friendlier, it's such a uh, friendlier service to use. And I and I think that's a good point too. Sort of as technology is advancing that the methods of sort of breaking your back to sell that. I don't know if you're a band and you have a member in high school, like it's, it's, you know, you don't have to like run through high school halls to sell tickets. There are, there are easier ways, hopefully if your band has any presence online, which you should probably be doing anyway. Um, If you, I mean, so would you end it if you had the choice to end it or do you think it just, it just is always going to be there? No, I actually think that we, we, we another thing we're not discussing about this thing of like companies like Limited Run or Top Spin or I, Ticket Leap's another one doing these tickets is is this will, will probably actually be the death of pay to play and the death of a lot of promoters is because to be honest with you you don't need the promoter as much anymore. Um, you know, there's some like you talk about Nate Duro, he does a great job of being kind of the hub of a scene. Um, in his city, but you know, for a lot of these clubs that are just you know be cannibalizing bands um, for for their self promotion, you know, you can now rent out a venue and sell tickets on your website. And if you put together a good show, um, you can ticket it yourself, and all you need is somebody with an iPod Touch to scan the tickets at the door. Like it's that simple, or just read off a will call sheet. You could see. Let's say you're a band that now can do 200 people in your hometown. For your next show, you could just go up to one of the venues. We'll rent you the hall for the night. Put up the money for yourself. If they even make you put up money, do your own promotion, sell your own tickets, get your own door person, 
and use whatever infrastructure that club may have and skip the outside promoter and get more money for yourself. So, and the same could even go for if you're a, you know, band that can only draw 25 people, but you've been talking to a band you really want to bring in from out of town that doesn't have a booking agent yet, or may have a small booking agent and they can draw a hundred people. You know, you could put the show on yourself, make a good contact, and make some pretty good money to fund your band. Yeah, actually, that's really interesting. I just had, I actually just had a recent experience with this. Uh, for Skate and Surf, uh, I, I was, I had two bands playing Skate and Surf in Asbury Park this year, and Knuckle Puck and Light Years, and uh, uh, someone working for the festival was like, hey, like, you as property to Zach, would you like to have an after party this year? I was like, Oh, that would that'd be a lot of fun. Like, can I pick my band? And they're like, Yeah. And I was like, Cool. I'm gonna go for this conflict of interest thing, and I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna have Knuckle Puck and Lightyear's play this show, and I'll have it co-sponsored by Bad Timing Records. Um, and they're like, and so you know, we started talking about it, and I was talking with uh, Scansurf promoters, and I was like, Well, so are you guys gonna provide the venue? Like, how are we gonna do this? Because I am not a promoter, and this all sounds really stressful to me. And um, I was working with someone young on the younger side there. His name's Sam, and he was like, you know, like Asbury Lanes. Uh, Asbury Lanes is a smaller venue in Asbury Park, uh, for those who don't know. And he was like, well, Asbury Lanes is booked, but, you know, I have a friend, and he, he has a loft space in Asbury. We could do the show there. And I was like, are we going to get shut down by the cops? And Sam was like, I don't know, but why don't we try to do it? And uh, I was like, all right. So... You know, what the major thing I needed to figure out, though, was, well, how am I going to sell tickets to this? Uh, and then I realized, oh, wow, I can do this on limited run, as we were just saying. And it was it was an incredible experience. We just put it on a limited run. Limited run didn't take any fees. Uh, limited run has an app, has part, part of their web app is just you can go on your iPad, you can go into your store, and you can just have their whole list of will call names from people that you bought ticket. And so we put someone at the door and they just tapped every name up that came up. And we sold like 100 tickets online in advance to the show. And it was so simple. So actually, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I don't know how likely it is that something like this could happen in like happen more frequently in the next year. But like long term, I think it's a very valid thing, especially as more people start to be like, aware of these tools like limited run or or you know any of these any of the other services that you named because it was actually a breeze like i'm ready to do it next year again because it was honestly just such a simple and fun experience and you know for knuckle puck we're looking to set up a hometown show in august and i was with the band the other day and they're like well how are we going to sell tickets because they want to do basically a vfw show i was like oh you know what we could just we could just put it on our uh, our merch store through Limited Run, and we could just have an iPad at the door, and that'll be that. And also, you know, the band gets to keep those email addresses too, um, which is which is great, super super important. And it was a big thing we actually started doing with Man Overboard years ago. Is that when they would do their uh, some of their local shows, is that we would insist that we got the email addresses and we got to be the people who owned part of that list every time they played. And it, it you know, that's why they have such a huge mailing list these days. And that mailing list is really effective for getting people out to shows. Um, the other thing I'll say about this that's interesting is there's a couple bands like the Pixies, and I want to say Umphreeze McGee, did uh, some tours where they were the promoters and the, uh, 
headlining band as well. So they went in and rented out the venues instead of having to go through promoters and infrastructure, and they ticketed it themselves so that they wouldn't have to deal with like the part of their profit that gets cannibalized by a Live Nation Ticketmaster, you know, who are two of the most disgusting companies in the business. Yeah, yes, they are. Uh, I, I think it's actually, I think we will probably see an interesting shift in that. And now I think I'm going to be stuck thinking about that for the rest of the day. But someone like Nate Duro, he's sort of the exception to the rule where I think you said it best in that he is sort of the centerpiece for that Michigan scene. And when you get a promoter like that, that's so great. Or a promoting company like that, right? So like R5 in Philly, like they're great. Yes. They're the best. They're the best in the country, I think. Um, and, you know, there are definitely companies like R5, like Fusion throughout the country, but they're, they're not prevalent. Uh, you know, it's often just like a no-name promoter that leaves town every nine months to go to a different market or whatever, something like that. Mm-hmm. And so I think if there's enough frustration from the bands trying to develop their own scene and they don't want it to sort of fall apart once a promoter gets tired of taking advantage to the same band for a pay-to-play thing, then we, you know, that's, that's when you start to see the change. And if the change is easier because it's, there are dedicated tools to make that work, then... That could be awesome. And again, like I had a really great experience. I I was super stressed out before we sort of like opened doors for the loft show or whatever. But as soon as people started coming in and like the 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 nice girl we had at doors was clicking names on my iPad, I was like, wow, this is phenomenal. (laughs) Like I didn't like it's a lot easier than you might think. And so while it sounds stressful to be like, gotta put tickets on sale, gotta find the door person, like hope this place has a PA, like stuff like that. Once once you have sort of those bare minimums away, you're really just you're really just asking people to buy a ticket, and that's what the promoter's doing anyway. But you get to keep all that money, hopefully. Um, so I think I actually like that a lot. That's that's kind of a really interesting thing. That you're right, we we didn't touch on it first. And yeah, and I think like there's even going to be a thing of that. What we're going to see is a lot more bands as they prove that they have some of the power over these promoters is that they're going to say, I want the email addresses of my customers because we're also seeing the thing that, you know, as music downloads die, we can't trade a music download for an email, which is a really strong mailing list building tool. We're going to see, though, you know, because you're not downloading my music or you're doing this, I want to have the name so I can email you every time I come to town. Like, you now have all those email addresses of all those people who were excited about this last show to tell them about next year's show, and that's so 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 powerful and so necessary when you're trying to build this band and uh i th- think that that's gonna be a big big deal yeah and and again to bring up this knuckle puck show we're planning in august uh the band is going on tour with census fail in september and there's no chicago date because census fail is playing riot fest and we didn't make it on the festival this year so instead of playing chicago at 10 p.m after riot fest ends that night or something the band's going to do like a vfw show where they grew up playing and going to see their small local favorite bands. And, you know, those those people that are going to go to that show to see, like, this band play on a floor and get really hot and sweaty in August in Chicago, like, those are the fans whose email addresses we want, right? Because those are the most dedicated yeah. fans. And that's awesome. Like, that's truly great. That That fan is more likely to, like, when we send out a newsletter about, hey, like we just announced a tour or we have a new EP or there's more merch or something limited, right? That's the fan that's going to be like, oh yeah, I saw that band played on a floor when they've been going on big tours for the rest of the year. Like that was awesome. 
you know, it's going to make them think of that night when you email them instead of getting an email from, you know, a random promoting com- a random promoter company when their band's coming back around three months later, something like that. It's to our advantage. Yes. And I think it's also way more effective when you get a personal letter from a band than the usual promoter emailing you about 20 bands that you don't even care about. Yeah, we should talk about that more probably on a later episode. You have so many good... Way more, way more newsletter tips than I can even think of, and that's something I need to get back into soon. But you guys, so, took it's, such it's great like I wrote a book. On, yeah, so you wrote a book on it. Huh? So, so what, do you have anything to recommend? You know, I had a, I had two long flights last week to the West Coast and back, uh, and I just kind of listened to older music. Uh, we were, <laughs> we will have a later episode on this, but Jesse and I are putting together lists of music for for something that we want to talk about on the show, and I was listening to music on that but i would you know i i it had been a while since i had listened to thursday's war all the time and i realized boy that's really one of my favorite records uh so for some reason if you haven't listened to thursday or that record war all the time i would i would recommend that and i have not started my creativity ink book yet but i'm, I'm gonna get there i'm gonna get there <laughs> what what about you I saw the funniest comedy I've seen in years, which was Obvious Child, and it's a very controversial movie because... Oh, yeah, I um, saw that. I saw that being advertised, rather. Yeah, uh, well, NBC won't air the ads for it because it's a movie that shows you that abortion is not the worst thing in the world, and um, it's... The makers of it were so smart. Like, you know, there's that rule in comedy writing uh, for a movie that you need to have a laugh every minute. They made this movie so funny. There's a laugh every 30 seconds, despite it being about a very serious subject. It's very not serious. And the tone is just impeccable. And Jenny Slate, just crazy how good a performance this is for an unknown actress. She's going to be humongous because she just destroyed that role. And it was, I can't recommend that movie enough because it actually shows a lot of the truths about abortion, not the lies that we're told every day by idiots at Fox News. Yeah, yeah, I want to see that. Also, I guess uh, I just realized where I saw the preview for that movie. Uh, I went to go see Grand Budapest Hotel like four months later in a uh, like cheap Eugene movie theater that shows movies after they've been put on DVD, and that was awesome. That's that's such a Eugene thing to exist. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen that movie, but it was great. Like, I truly, truly loved it, and so I would definitely actually recommend that if you did not see that in theaters. I thought it was phenomenal, but... Yeah, I, I have it on uh, on my list. It's the first Wes Anderson movie I didn't see in the theater. Yeah, it was great. So, anyways, uh, thank you to listening to Off the Record this week. Uh, you can find us at Off the Record. FM. Uh, if you subscribe to us on iTunes, please feel free to rate us or leave a review. It really helps uh, more people be able to find out about the show and check out Bad Timing Records and get more fans. And we'll be back next week. 